20 of Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm Alan Kavana, joined as always by David Smith. On this episode, we ask and you answer. Now, we will answer. <laughs> yes, an episode dedicated to listener questions, and we've got some good ones with some great nuggets of info on the way. That, plus our big Bristol preview, it is elimination time for the Cup Series. Looking forward to that. But first, as always, it is episode 120, so let's start with a look back on a driver who drove the number 20 to Rookie of the Year honors. No, we're not talking Tony Stewart nor Joey Logano. It's Rob Moroso. David, Rob Moroso is a name some may not even know, but because of his career and his life were both cut short, his name doesn't often come up. So I am glad we are doing uh, the start of an episode dedicated to him, or at least in reference to him, because Rob Moroso was, first of all, a race car driver from Connecticut, David. That is where I'm from. That is why I know the name. And after succeeding as a kid in go-karts in the north, he moved down south. And David, I know you'll fill in a lot of these details, but Rob Moroso became the Bush Series champion at age 19. He moved up to the Cup Series in the next year and ended up winning the Rookie of the Year award posthumously because he was killed in a car crash where reports say he had a blood alcohol level of more than twice the legal limit. Another driver in another car also died in that accident. And David, and in so many ways, uh, just a shame, really, on many levels, all meanings of the word, that uh, his life, his career, and the circumstances behind it all cut short. So I'll let you take it from there. What what stands out about Rob Moroso? Because again, a lot of people even listening, uh, and, and no fault of their own, they won't know that name. Yeah, and maybe you can speak a little bit to this, but it seems uh, as if uh, when an athlete, and, and we can just go specifically with a race car driver, comes from the Northeast, that whole region really rallies behind them. We saw that with Ricky Craven. We saw that with Austin Theriault and Steve I, I mean, Park. I, I mean, I can name a bunch. Yeah, Ryan Priest, Ryan Priest, all of them. Exactly. <laughs> and, and and so so there is this this fighting spirit, us against the world mentality that these northeastern drivers have. And and Rob Morosa was that for this era. He won six races in the Bush series, now the Xfinity series between the ages of 19 and 20. And four of those wins took place in 1989, the year he ended up winning the series title for his family race team, his father, Dick on the race team. Well, that team actually moved up to the NASCAR cup series in 1990. That was, that was the team for which he won the rookie of the year award. Uh, it operated on a similar budget to what it had in the Bush series, which meant uh, they were all at a significant disadvantage in the Cup series. Uh, Moroso's only top 10 finish was the July race in Daytona. Steve Bird was the team's crew chief in the Bush series uh, for their championship run. They promoted him to the Cup series along with Rob Moroso. Uh, only to part ways with Steve Bird after three races, and they replaced him with the icon, suitcase Jake Elder. <laughs> but the the lack of money and the lack of experience on the driver's part still did them in. Moroso suffered race-ending mechanical failures in six of his 25 races that year. He crashed out of nine other races. So very much the stereotypical aggressive rookie 
And when you couple that with just an inexperienced and underfunded team, problems like this are going to happen. But if uh, we want to estimate what his production was for that year, and, and he spent most of this year as a 21-year-old, it was a point eight hundred peer. Uh, and for a frame of reference, the average 21-year-old peer is a little over 600 hmm. So it would seem that he was on his way to having an above average career in the Cup Series and a ride with a better team with more financial backing would have tipped the scales on that. And Alan, there was at least one possibility that we know of. Mm -hmm. He made his second ever Xfinity Series start for Hendrick Motorsports. And his first career Cup Series start also came for Hendrick Motorsports. It felt a little like he was heading in the direction of one day driving for Hendrick full-time. They were in the market for a young driver uh, that didn't come to fruition. That role might have gone to Jeff Gordon. Um, but as we talked about, he was killed four days after his 22nd birthday, uh, not soon after uh, his uh, his race at North Wilkesboro. And it was because of that that we did not see the full extent of his abilities in NASCAR's top tier, which uh, all signs pointed to certainly an optimistic future behind the wheel. Absolutely. And, you know, do I encourage you guys do a Google search of him, read the articles, read, you know, the, the, the primary uh, sources of information, if you will, the quotes back then from drivers uh, about who this driver was and what his potential was. Even this Wikipedia page. I mean, it just reads like, I mean, a driver, you know, not from the South who went through the Buck Baker school affiliated with Hendrick Motorsports, right? I mean, does that sound like somebody we know? It sounds like a young Jeff Gordon, right? I mean, this was a, a similar path that Rob Moroso took and, uh, you know, terrible, uh, shameful, right? As I said, circumstances, meaning in all sorts, in all meanings of the word for shameful, um, the, the way his life ended and who else was involved and everything that happened surrounding his death in Mooresville, North Carolina. But to look back on the potential, it's always just uh, it's always just kind of sad to look back on a young driver with a lot of potential and to see it not come to fruition. So with that said, episode 120, looking back on uh, Rob Moroso and his young career, cut short. When your business is starting its championship run, nothing matters more than finding and hiring the best team. With Indeed, you have the power to build a dynasty by hiring more MVPs faster. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
All right, let's get this episode started, David, because you put out the bat signal. And every time you do, we always get the greatest response on Twitter, on Discord, on wherever. You put out the, the bat signal for questions, and we try to provide some of those answers. And our listeners, David, are just so smart, and they provide such great questions. So we're going to go through some of them right now. So we are going to start from uh, Jerry Eldred on Discord. His question. Looking at analytics, is there anyone of interest driving for backmarker teams? Do we have a future Chastain, McDowell, DiBenedetto grinding out laps in a Rick Ware, MBM, Gaunt Brothers, or Live Fast Car? Great question, Jerry. I mean, we're talking names like Josh Balicki, James Davison, Joey Gase, Garrett Smithley. I mean, you can name a bunch, and I'm sure you will, David. But is there anyone grinding it out back there that, from analytics that you, that you can at least read something from, maybe some potential for what they're doing in a car, you know, used to run in the back of the field? It's a, it's a really fun question. I will stick with one answer, though. The driver I'm most fascinated by is James Davison. Uh, purely as a passer, he has the second best surplus passing value among all drivers of all sample sizes. He holds positive surplus values on 550 tracks, 750 ovals, and road courses. Now, the caveat to that is that he is completing passes uh, against the likes of some of the guys that you mentioned, uh, throw BJ McLeod in there, Quinn Huff in there. It would appear that he can pretty much get a position whenever he wants within his running whereabouts, but nothing really beyond that. He's he's limited by his equipment. He isn't scoring the high finishes. Uh, his best finishes this year are, not surprisingly, they are attrition-based. Uh, and it's it's in a car that's not expected to get any good finishes based on it's equipment handicap, and and that helps explain his zero peer for the year. But I'm fascinated because mm-hmm. he's 35. He's not a young driver, but he is a project. He's coming to stock car racing from Australia, and his background is eclectic. He's competed in Formula cars. He's competed in Star Mazda. He's done Indy Lights. He's uh, been in IndyCar proper, and he's dabbled in sports car racing. And I think there could be some Marcos Ambrose potential if he were to get a quality ride, especially on the road courses. He hasn't hit a statistical peak, but that's coming soon. Age 39 is just four years down the road, so it's sooner rather than later. But I'd really like to see the extent of what we're able to see from him because he's clearly able to just go out and boss his running whereabouts on every track type. And that makes me believe that he has the potential to do more in a stock car than what we've seen from him. So there's a chance his career could mean something to hold some significance in a way similar to Marcos Ambrose. I mean, really similar coming into this genre of motorsport late in his career, really, and still providing something of an impact at uh, NASCAR's highest level. David, this is why we appreciate your work, and I hope why people appreciate the podcast, because there is something to be learned and extrapolated from throughout the entire field. My question always to you is, is there any team principal, any GM, president, owner, what have you, that, that would actually take a look 
and and see this deeper dive and see this potential in a driver like James Davison? Do you think it's possible? Is it not Rick Ware? Is it, I mean, is it not a serious question? Is it not already Rick Ware to kind of understand what he has? I'm sure that there's some money being brought to the table, but I won't ignore the fact that he is in a car in most races and that's better than most, right? Um, from this point forward, it, it, there's just going to have to be someone who has a funded ride willing to take this kind of a chance. Um, for James on his own, you, you know, it might be a very old school method, but drop down to the Xfinity series for five races or two and good equipment. See if you can buy a good ride at, at maybe a road course and go out and win it and then make people think about you a little bit differently. It's the Ross Chastain path. Uh, I mean, and that's, that's somebody we're probably going to touch on here in a minute, but that seems to be the surefire method for getting the attention of folks who might not take these kinds of deep dives. Uh, that's unfortunate. You you want folks at the the very tip top of the sport to know what's happening right underneath their nose. Um, but for James, who at least on paper has something to offer, and at the very least, I think it's very interesting uh, and, and, and deserves something of a shot just so that we can understand what he's truly capable of. Because there might be a road course win in the cup series on the table for him. There might be some good runs elsewhere on the table for him. And that's a good career. Um, right now he's in the back of the pack. A 30th place finish is a good day. Maybe that isn't his actual ceiling. Maybe a 15th place finish is his actual ceiling. And if that's the case, then he certainly deserves to be in the cup series and even more so uh, a, a, a far better, more quality ride than the one he already has. All right. Good question. Good answer. Next one up from Austin Swaim on Twitter. As we just mentioned, Ross Chastain took a lot of bad rides in lower series before popping. <laughs> there are a lot of guys who bounce around Xfinity rides in the back half of the field. Who are some that may deserve a look like Chastain got based on their production and passing ability? David, a similar question, but to what we just had, but, but different. This is looking for a productive driver in the Xfinity series right now. And he mentioned Ross Chastain as an example, which is appropriate, because let's not forget what Ross Chastain did, right? A few years ago, I mean, he, he spent years in that Johnny Davis equipment. A few years ago, I think he raced just about more than anybody, right? He was in every single kind of race car, all three series, every race that he could, back marker rides, what have you, racing everything and everything. Uh, so, you know, it gets the opportunity in Ganassi Xfinity equipment, that leads to a Ganassi Cup ride, now track house next year. I mean, he has climbed the ladder with all that stuff. So is there anyone similar or have the similar Ross-like potential for making a climb up the ladder? I picked two uh, of very different ilks. Uh, the first is a bit more concrete than the second, and that is Bailey Curry. Um, hmm. Earlier this year, I wrote an really? article for Motorsports Analytics searching for drivers similar in stat profile to reigning cup series champion chase Elliott. And I, I call that article doppelgangers and within his running whereabouts in the Xfinity series, Bailey Curry ranked in the 99th percentile for surplus value, nearly the 80th percentile for preferred groove restarting the 90th percentile for crash avoidance. Hmm. And he was a tick below average for peer. And within Chase Elliott's running whereabouts, he had a similar profile during his 
2020 title run. Now, this does not mean that Bailey Curry is the next Chase Elliott. I'll preface <laughs> that. But uh, I do believe that it means Curry has something more to offer than meets the eye. Right now, he's driving for just a drag of a race team. Uh, last weekend, he drove for JD Motorsports. I, I think that's actually a, a, an upgrade and, and probably a good spot for him. A, a ride of greater significance for sure. Uh, there is good stuff there. So so don't uh, don't discount Bailey Curry. The second choice, though, Alan, this is a wild card. <laughs> Santino Ferrucci, new okay. to NASCAR this year from IndyCar. And before that, the formula racing here. Uh, here is a list of drivers with more than one restart attempt from inside the top 14 that rank better than Ferrucci in overall position retention rate in a, on Xfinity series restarts. Here's the list. Ready? Mm-hmm. Martin Truex and Kyle Busch. Wow. That's it. That's the entire list. Ferrucci holds a 1.583 peer that ranks higher than Josh Berry, Brett Moffitt, Landon Castle, and Daniel Hemrick. That's a bunch of fan favorites there. And he's younger than all of them. So, of course, I'd like to see more. I hope he does this uh, Xfinity Series full-time next year. For uh, He's driving for Sam Hunt Racing. Seems to be an emerging team. Uh, because, boy, he sure seems pretty good behind the wheel. Interesting take there. Because uh, I just was not expecting that name. Just in general. The, the name Santino Ferrucci. I thought he was the, the next big hot young thing from, you know, what, Italy or something? Nope. He's from Connecticut, where I'm from. Exactly <laughs> what I was expecting. Had no idea. But th- that's cool. Because, again, I mean, in something of uh, obviously an IndyCar driver coming over to NASCAR. I did not realize he had such a statistical profile, David. Yeah, burgeoning one. I yeah, I'm. I, I like these guys, just these interlopers, just, just trying their hand. Sage Karam in the Xfinity race uh, drove a, a one-off uh, for Jordan Anderson's team at Indianapolis. I, I thought he showed some promise. Give me all of these guys from Europe, from IndyCar, wherever. I, I want to see what they can do, what they might have the potential to do. It's a lot of fun stumbling upon young talents uh, this way. And in Ferrucci's case, he's come into just a a handful of oval races in the Xfinity series and has really shown some jobs. Uh, Certainly something worth uh, paying attention to going forward. All right. Good stuff. Next up from Robert Cole on Twitter. Heard several comments about, quote, how guys who run well at Richmond will be a threat at Phoenix on TV last weekend. Since both Larson and Truex started at the back and they race played out fairly straightforward, has this tide shifted to Truex as the title favorite? Good question from Robert Cole, because how much did we learn from Richmond, right? Robert's question is something, you know, kind of, and he puts it in good perspective, a straight up driver versus driver, Truex versus Larson. Now, what I will say, David, is like Larson saw, gave us a big improvement from spring Richmond to early fall Richmond, right? Yes, he did. Yes. So Larson finished seventh in Phoenix back in the spring. So would you expect a similar improvement? And it has Truex outdone him in terms of title favorite? I, yeah, I'm curious to what you might say, because is, is whether he's like a, 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 there's a change in the betting favorite. I'm not really sure because odds makers seem to take a lot of time before turning that specific ship. But for me, 
Kyle Larson has never at any point this year been the outright championship favorite. Uh, you can go back what? to episodes 103 and 118, read my playoff preview uh, that is posted at the very True. top of Motorsports Analytics. I've got the receipts. <laughs> he might he might still win this championship. That, of course, might happen. Uh, however, I think this year is far more of a toss-up than most fans think. And what we've seen in the last two weeks solidify that theory. JGR was always going to do this. They showed this kind of strength at the beginning of the season on playoff tracks, and nothing actually changed. Hendrick Motorsports had a fantastic summer on tracks that do not have playoff representation. And in addition to to JGR, Larson is going to have to deal with Chase Elliott. The speed that Elliott has shown this year, pretty much in glimpses, has has been there the entire season. Uh, he he has not sustained it. That's the issue. And if he's able to sustain it during some stretch of this year's playoffs, Larson will essentially have to deal with this funhouse mirror version of himself because Elliot's peripheral numbers are nearly perfectly in line with Larson's. Everything Larson can do on the racetrack, Chase Elliott can do, but slower. And if Elliot is faster, and his best lap ranking suggests it's there. Uh, again, it just hasn't been sustained. Then it's game on. I, I think this is far more of a toss-up. I thought last year was a toss-up, but this year, even with Larson winning as frequently as he did and as dominant as he looked in spurts, I think it it really is this close. I think every pit stop, every spot on the racetrack, everything from here on out matters. And we're kind of seeing that come to the surface, at least through two playoff races. All right. So how much did we learn from Richmond and how does that compare for Truex, if you will, if you're just doing straight up? I feel good if I'm Truex. I feel good if I'm Denny Hamlin. I I think those two were always going to butt heads and compete against each other because those have been the 750 horsepower stalwarts all season long within JGR. They ranked first and second in points scored on playoff tracks with Talladega omitted earlier this year. We kind of knew going in that they were going to be two drivers to be reckoned with, even if their regular season records didn't exactly precede them. Um, So I think Larson, at the very least, is he one of five title favorites? Absolutely. But it's not going to be a cakewalk. It's going to be very difficult because it's clear to me that Hamlin and Truex are on their A game. I think Joe Gibbs Racing as a whole really is on its A game. So yeah, it, it's we've got a battle on our hands. There's I I I don't think there is an outright favorite at all. Good stuff. Looking forward to our Bristol preview. Another 750 track coming up. We'll we'll get to that a little later in the episode. Next up though, from Ryan Larkin on Twitter. Can we get a comparison between Eric Jones last year and Christopher Bell this year? I have not noticed much improvement overall with the number 20 team. Curious if there is a statistical justification for the move. Now, David, remember that question, because I will also add, 
uh, I don't know if the 43 car has improved that much, which I would have totally mm. expected with Eric Jones there. Now, again, I, I'm just going by top line stats. You, you can educate me, but top line stats, three top tens for Eric Jones so far this year with eight races to go. Last year, Bubba had five top tens with one top five that Eric Jones does not have in that car this year. So I, I guess a, a two-pronged question here. Has the 20 car improved at all? And, and what I kind of would be interested in, has the 43 car improved at all? So for the 20 car, last year, Eric Jones, age 24, ranked 10th in peer with a 1.5 rating. He ranked third in adjusted pass efficiency. He was fourth in surplus passing value. He ranked 19th in restart retention. From a speed standpoint, the number 20 team ranked 15th overall, and that was under the watch of crew chief Chris Gale. This year, the number 20 team, Christopher Bell, same age, 24, ranks 21st in peer with a 0.87 rating. He ranks 18th in adjusted pass efficiency on non-drafting ovals, ranks 28th in surplus passing value, ranks 16th in restart retention. That's the lone driver upgrade. And in speed, the number 20 team ranks 11th overall with new crew chief, two-time Cup Series championship winning crew chief Adam Stevens. So restarts in speed tend to be the upgrade. And also we'll throw in Chris Bell's road racing ability is a pretty incredible bonus. But for the most part, there was some drop off. At least it was mostly drop off compared to improvement. So uh, Ryan Larkin's got a point here. Jones was fantastic last mm. season in terms of his peripheral numbers. Bell offers some things better, some things worse, but all in all, he's a different driver. And that's obviously what JGR was shooting for. Now, as it pertains to Richard Petty Motorsports, they really weren't shooting for a different driver. They scrambled after Bubba Wallace left. They were fortunate to pick up Eric Jones. And yeah, on, on the whole, Jones is having one of the worst seasons of his careers. Now, the peripheral numbers are still there. He's a competent passer, especially so on road courses, which has been a, a delightful surprise. We did not know really what to expect from him on road courses coming into this year. And the team's investment in uh, AI software uh, has, has worked wonders for crew chief Jerry Baxter. He's gone from a deep negative in terms of positions uh, lost on green flag pit cycles to a heavy positive. And that's a transition that we don't typically see. Uh, but Jones's results at times have been lackluster compared to the little speed that they have and vice versa. And when you kind of get into that seesaw back and forth, uh, no, it's it's sort of been a, a net balance for the, the season this year compared to last season. I am interested. Again, it's a, maybe it's a 2021 thing, but the 750 tracks have been kind to Christopher Bell, and we've seen that in the first two races. Well, he had trouble in Darlington. He was running well in Darlington, but it had trouble toward the end, but he did very well in Richmond, and I would expect something good out of him in Bristol. So, uh, again, improvement over Eric Jones, that, that can be your argument. You can make one way or the other, but I think having playoff success may shine a different light if he indeed you know makes it a few rounds. I have to imagine that 
the they are happy with the decision, JGR and Toyota. And from where Bell is right now, based on what the playoff schedule is, what his strength appears to be, we've said before, he's got the chops to make a deep run in the playoffs. I think he's a, a round of eight kind of driver, and I don't know that we – Considered him that at the beginning of the year, and and maybe not even the middle of the year. Hmm. Um, he he does have that ability, and so does this team. Um, that's entirely possible. I don't think there's any regret being had. But to um, the original, the point of the original question, Ryan's point. Uh, yeah, I, I think there was a lot of trade off to get to this point. They dispatched with a driver that was really good and had discernible strengths for another driver that is also really good and has different strengths. Next up from Ben Amato on Discord, are there ever times when peer can be a bit misleading and it becomes important to consider other stats more heavily when evaluating a driver? For example, Ben says, if you have a driver whose peer ranking isn't particularly great, but you notice a good surplus passing value and good restart retention, would that suggest maybe strategy or getting caught up in wrecks may be preventing them from producing better results and in turn a better peer? David, essentially, can, can peer me be misleading? When we talk about peer, we talk about production and equal equipment rating, basically what a driver is doing, uh, sans the equipment, if you will, or without everything equal. What is the driver providing? That's what peer tells us. But can peer ever be misleading depending on some of their circumstances? We actually just had one of those times. One of those examples that Ben was asking for came to the surface recently. Noah Gragson, at one point this season, ranked in the top three in Xfinity Series passing, top five in restart retention, and bottom three in peer. Now, judging by his passing and his restarting, we can guess that he's probably not one of the three worst drivers in the Xfinity Series. So, more than likely, he was better than his peer indicated. And lo and behold, he's has two wins in a row now. The season's uh, hit a turning point and all is good. But that low production rating was still indicative of a major problem. If you can't finish races or get results that exceed or equal the strength of uh, your team and your car, that might be the biggest problem you could possibly have in auto racing because you don't get points for passing. You don't get purse money for restarts. That's not a thing. And certainly until he won these last two races, he was underachieving in a car for a team that won titles with its last two drivers before him, uh, William Byron and Tyler Reddick. The common denominator was the crew chief, Dave Ellens. And while, yes, it's obvious that Noah does some things very well on the racetrack, his biggest hindrance was not being around at the finish or fading before the finish. And that's the sort of thing that keeps your peer low, yes, but also keeps cup teams from calling. You know what I mean? When your post-race interviews are exclusively done in front of the infield care center, cup teams notice that. And maybe things are going in a different direction now, but um, Ben asked for an example there you go. That is the the best example that I think hits the nail on the head uh, where we have to fall back on other metrics 
to understand what it is that a driver does well. But simultaneously, I think his low peer at the time was perfectly indicative of his biggest problem. And we've done whole episodes on crashing. And I know Ben is is a loyal listener, but uh, he used the term getting caught up in wrecks. And I know you said before, David, uh, you don't really get caught up in wrecks. Or if you do, that is your fault, right? I mean, bad, bad luck happens sometimes. But if it happens a little too much, you know, crashing, wrecking, it is your fault regardless, right? (laughs) Uh, I I feel like at least the last few years, not having 100% awareness is the hallmark of the Xfinity series in general um, for, for, for a lot of cases. These drivers are young, right? Like this is, this is supposed to be a developmental series. And boy, that has never been more the case uh, than what we've seen recently. And, and Noah Gragson's been a part of that. These accidents that he's found himself in have largely been because of his doing. He happened to be there. Well, you don't have to be there. And that's something that he's going to have to slowly learn. And once that issue turns the corner, then you're going to have a more complete race car driver uh, who does have quantifiable potential um, that we could expect more from, better finishes, and ultimately a higher peer. All right. Great question. Great example, David. Thank you for that. Finally, let's wrap it up with Ja G on Discord. Uh, this is a really weird one, uh, he says, because and it may not even be possible to answer, but on a pop cultural front, Assuming we take Ricky Bobby's mantra at face value, what would the statistical profile like Pierre of a driver look like who wins half of the races but crashes out and finishes last in the other half? What would what would that statistical profile look like, David? And you know, I just thought of a you know a baseball example: someone who either hits home runs or strikes out. Is that a, is that a comparable stat, or how how do you look at such a question? What a statistical profile would be at someone who wins half the races and finishes last in the other half. I mean, I took it on the nose, just as it is. the The crash frequency here is easy to sort out, <laughs> assuming that one crash does the trick. Our uh, Ricky Bobby analog here would finish the season with a 0.5 crash rate, and that is on the high end. It's likely one of the three or five worst in the series. But as for his peer, we will assume that he has a good car and team and, and pick everything that goes with it. So this is an estimation. For his production and equal equipment rating across a 36 race season, it would be a tick over 3.9, which is a fantastic rating, which, Alan, it makes sense because he wins 18 of 36 races, but he also did nothing in the other 18, which grounds it a bit. But even then, the first or last philosophy seems to be, from a production standpoint, in line with what we've seen from Kyle Larson this season. Just, it's obviously a much different pathway, but I don't know, at the end of the day, if you're winning 18 times a year, (laughs) if you are literally first or last, that's not a terrible record. I would hope an owner would want an 18-time winner, even if it took 18 other cars out, right? I mean, because it comes, you know, the the, the balance there, the yin and the yang of it. But I would hope 
the 18 wins balances out the 18 crashes. I, I think it would, right? It really makes you wonder why was there even a point in that movie that Ricky Bobby was at without a ride? If that was, <laughs> if this was indeed his philosophy and he lived it to its fullest, <laughs> how how many wins did he actually have, and why were owners wanting no part of that? That's the real question. What an excellent question. Uh, that is something for another episode one day. But uh, but great question. Um, and do you compare? Would you compare that to my baseball example, homers and striking out? I, I think again. I, I think as an owner, you would want that, right? If you, someone has like what a fifty percent shot at hitting a home run or striking out, I think I would take those odds. I f- but I mean, I, f- I feel like you're not giving it its due. I feel like it's either a, like a grand slam or or <laughs> yeah, okay. it's like a um, it's not just a strikeout. You got to get somebody else out. So you've got to like ground out, but then it turns into a triple play or something like <laughs> okay, that's, that's like, it's got to be a wider disparity than than what you're giving here, because really, this is like the the best and worst of auto racing sort of encapsulated in one stat profile. All right. I, it's still, I would take them, you know, if it's a grand slam or a triple play, I, I would still take them. So yeah, it'd be really uh, frustrating. Excellent. Uh, excellent questions. Another great segment provided by our listeners. So thank you for those questions. We had fun answering them. Let's move on to our Bristol race preview. It is the Bristol night race, David. It ha- It is the first time we have seen uh, the Bristol track, uh, the one we know of anyway, right, on the concrete because they were on dirt earlier this year. Uh, it is the third race of the first round, so eliminations will be made. There are some drivers in desperate positions, obviously four of them who need to work their way into the top 12 by either getting points or and or a victory. So... Being that it is the first time we have seen the Bristol pavement this year, David, uh, let's just talk about the track itself. What matters, right? We talk about this a lot when we talk about racetracks and races. You know, is it speed? Is it the restarts? What have you? What matters at Bristol in terms of a path towards success? Bristol typically plays host to races with high caution volumes. And, uh, and, and I say this because last year's playoff race at Bristol was a wild outlier. Uh, it was a rare Bristol race that contained a green flag pit cycle. And that simply is not the norm. Uh, I I don't even know if I, how much stock I put into that race. It was so bizarre, but for the most part, the formula for Bristol is short run speed and well-executed restarts. And those restarts are paramount. The outside groove at Bristol is the single most dominant restart groove in all of NASCAR. Across last year's two races, uh, those are the only two races on this 750 package um, with the updated downforce, those occupying the outside line retain position 98% of the time. Wow. That's big. You know, if you're just starting to listen to this podcast, 98% is friggin' huge. Uh, compare that to the inside grooves 16% retention mm-hmm. rate. This is a tremendous disparity, right? So the the good news is that uh, the choose rule is in place for this weekend. Pre-choose rule, we saw drivers have good days that did not go rewarded. 
just because of where they were slotted at some inopportune restart. And we saw good results that were frankly sort of undeserved and, and very right place, right time. But now the choose rule there, there is no excuse. You need the short run speed. You need to be positioned well on restarts. And that depends on the choose. And then you just need to execute. Uh, that is typical Bristol in the modern day. All right. That's fair. Again, there was only the one race. Uh, we had the two races last year. We have not seen the pavement so far this year. When we think of Bristol, you mentioned it. We, we think of contact. We think of cautions. Uh, some chaos sometimes, right? Whether it is those crashes, bump and run maneuvers, uh, the fights, the helmet throwing, all that stuff. Who does that benefit, right? If it is a chaotic race at the end, does it change the playoff picture? Does it give one driver an advantage over the other? I think from a positive regression perspective, you know, maybe we're, we are talking cautions when we refer to a chaotic race, if you will. Mm -hmm. You mentioned last year's race, just five cautions. I think last year for 50 laps, which is uh, low or tame for a Bristol race. Is that fair to say? So what does a chaotic race mean for uh, the potential of the, the playoff picture? In general, chaotic races benefit good restarters, but that's a double-edged sword because cautions could include those good restarters. So uh, if competitors are filtered out, then those who have avoided crashes rise to the top. And from there, that's a, you know, everything's better, a better choose position on restarts, potentially late in the race. And that is literally seeing your competition have a bad day while your good day becomes markedly better in real time. And it is because of that restart dynamic. I mean, hit the preferred groove. <laughs> your day is going to change by a moonshot. This is this is a volatile elimination race. It's certainly more volatile than than Darlington or Richmond would have been if that was the end race of the, the first round. Um, but of the three, Bristol has the most wild card tendencies and it's because of the the characteristics of the track which compound an impact with the more cautions we see so it's it's not a scenario of cautions breed cautions but maybe it's cautions breed the likelihood of flipping the script on on what we know of the the playoff cut line and I know we just talked about the restart lane disparity, but I just think about a few weeks ago back to Michigan, right? There was a big disparity, at least that day. The top line was the best. And Ryan Blaney took a chance, right? A lot of drivers, uh, they gave up starting on the front row because of that, uh, because of the advantage the outside line provided. Ryan Blaney took a shot and got the front row and ended up getting a win. I know the numbers are a bit worse at Bristol, but at least to, to me, at least it provides that opportunity that you never know. Some driver could take that opportunity toward the end of the race and get the hell of, you know, the restart of a season and maybe get out front. I mean, I just like that possibility, David. There were 22 restarts, clean restarts that lasted at least two laps last year at Bristol. There was just one pass for the lead from the car lining up uh, the inside of the front row, and that was Brad Keselowski. It took place on lap 68 
of the Bristol Spring Race, but that was the only one. Some listeners will hear problems. There are drivers who listen to this podcast that will say, so you're telling me there's a chance. And I hope we see it in the last 50 laps of Sunday's race. So on that note, uh, let's do our picks for the win. I will let you go first because I'm just so conflicted. I'll tell you why. So I'll let you go first. Who is winning the race on Saturday night, David? Uh, you know, in, in hindsight, this this might be obvious, but I'm I'm going to pick Kyle Busch, uh, eight time Bristol winner. He is good at Bristol in the good times. He is good at Bristol in the bad times. Uh, he finished fourth, fourth, and second in the last three races there, uh, during which he was encountering uh, a vicious dip in his speed. And after the uh, the last two weeks, last two playoff races. He needs this race. He needs a positive result. History says that he'll get a good one, and I think it's possible that he even wins the thing. All right, good, because I, I about talked myself out of picking Kyle Busch, and I'm glad I'm, I'm now on your side. So someone named Kyle will win this race. That's what I'm going, uh, <laughs> I'm settling on. But David, the only reason, because I, I was so into the metrics, so into the analytics and, and the data at motorsportsanalytics.com with Kyle Busch, that the head says, all right, he doesn't have the speed the 750 speed that some of the other drivers have, right? He doesn't have some of the other positive metrics that I wanted to see. The heart tells me he's Kyle Busch at Bristol who needs this race, who was running quite well last week. Uh, that's why I want to pick Kyle Busch. So you helped talk me out of it. Is that cool? Yeah, I, I think, I don't think he's fallen off that much to where he's going to be floundering for a, a top 10 finish at Bristol. I, I would, I would really be surprised if it's gotten that bad. I think at his core, he's one of, if not the best driver in in the sport, right? Um, he knows Bristol. He knows what he wants from his car at Bristol. I really don't see that going so far south that he is completely out of this one. So, yeah, I think he's going to be feisty enough uh, with or without speed. All right. We're both taking Kyle Busch. <laughs> Your contrarian pick. Give it to me. Uh, Kurt Busch is my oh, contrarian. Nice. Uh, he has top four speed during these playoffs, no matter how you shake it. Average median lap time, average best lap time, and... Uh, while I, I think the, the Chip Ganassi Racing contingent will be fast this weekend, that includes Ross Chastain, uh, the restarts will be the separator. Chastain, for my money, is not the restarter we need him to be just yet. Uh, I, I thought it was good on him to sort of admit that after uh, the, the Richmond race and the Darlington race. His restarts just aren't there. He's working on them. But Kurt Busch has that reputation. Um, and, and we said that's that's what's needed at Bristol speed and restarts even in what's been a down season uh in this regard just in in terms of restarts he is smart enough to identify where and how to restart um and as we said has the speed to burn so that's the exact recipe for bristol and i'm all in on the bush brothers for this weekend Nice. Uh, I guess I'm all in on JGR, Joe Gibbs Racing. I'm picking Seabell again. It worked for me last week, I guarantee. Uh, he'll probably get a spot in my uh, fantasy NASCAR Fantasy Live uh, starting lineup. Christopher Bell, uh, if you're still sleeping on him, I don't know why. Decent run last year with LFR in the spring here at Bristol in better equipment now. You know He doesn't need to win to advance, but uh, I think he will do well 
750 horsepower performance is where he's at in the Xfinity series. He has done well here at this track. So I just think uh, the train keeps rolling easy, easy top 10 for Christopher Bell. What do you think? I I think he will advance to the next round of the playoffs. And that round is going to be really interesting for him uh, with the Roval with his uh, newfound road course ability Uh, Vegas. A 550 track is a big toss up as is Talladega. That is going to be a challenge for him, but I think this weekend shall be easy. All right, good stuff. So uh, there you go. Episode 120 of Positive Regression. We covered a lot and looking forward to the Bristol night race as always. Don't forget, we are available on all major podcast platforms, no matter your device. Our entire back catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating or review. That stuff helps in spreading the word. We, of course, notice it is so appreciated. If you have any questions, we would love to hear them. Obviously, we just did a whole episode based on your questions because they are so good. Reach out to us on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G. P-O-D. David, what do you got this week? You are always working hard. This week on NBC Sports, I'm writing on the speed breakout of Chip Ganassi Racing. That will be posted Thursday morning, and I will have my Bristol race preview early Saturday morning. So please check both of those out. You can either uh, follow me on Twitter at davidsmithma or just visit nascar.nbcsports.com. I will be reading all of that uh, because I always do, first of all, but especially this week because I'll be back at the track, David. I am calling the race on pit road for the Performance Racing Network. Happy to say I will be back there for both Friday and Saturday night's races, so it will be fun to be back at Bristol and uh, call those races from the pits. As always, make sure you uh, also check out my Twitter account at Alan Cavana for all the good stuff we got going. If you are listening Thursday morning, thank you for being a subscriber. And make sure you check out my account for the latest edition of uh, our video from Speed Sport. Quick hits, getting you ready, previewing the entire world of racing in the weekend coming up well beyond NASCAR. That's always a good video. Let me know what you think. And then on Friday afternoons, uh, Fantasy Live from NASCAR.com. I hope you are still Uh, full in to your fantasy team because it is a big playoff reset. So hopefully you are getting something out of uh, listening to this podcast and watching fantasy live and having a great fantasy week because of it. Uh, I don't mean to brag, David, but I like to boast that I've been uh, pretty good the last few weeks. So uh, you get something out of it, myself and Amy Long. So make sure you watch that as well. But looking forward to that. Thank you for listening to episode 120 of Positive Regression. For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. We'll see you next week. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.